Good morning. Were you worried that I was going to walk out with the kids? <laughs> no, I'm glad to be in here with you this morning. Now, it may not surprise you to learn that I was an elementary education major in college. I still work with kids, and makes sense, right? But something you may not know is that I was also an English major in college. I love language, I love literature, and I love the study of language and literature and how the great writers can use their words in structured ways to reach into the human heart. So maybe it's not so surprising to learn that I love those things as well because I've chosen a profession where I can keep working with kids and where I can keep working with language. And I can work with the most powerful words of all time written in beautiful ways so that the power of those words reaches into human hearts and changes lives. So as we begin today, I wanted to offer you a little literature lesson on the structure of John chapter 19. Hang in there with me. Just wanted to show you one thing that we'll use, one literary device that the ancient writers use in this biblical text. And it's used to point us towards something in the text. So it's called a chiasmus or a chiastic structure. And it's named a chiasmus because the structure is visually similar to the Greek letter chi, which looks like the letter X, our letter X today. Now, a chiastic structure allows ideas to kind of crisscross as you hear them. The writer presents a series of ideas, and then they present those same ideas, but kind of in like a mirror image in a reverse order. The words that they use are not exactly the same when they're repeated, but the ideas are reflected in similar language. So you can find this device throughout Old and New Testament. Like if you were to Google chiastic structure in the Bible, it is everywhere. So we are going to look at a, a brief example. It's in Matthew 6.24. And in Matthew 6.24 we read, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So you can, um, you can see the ideas and the phrases that are repeating here. We've got at the two A's, top and bottom, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. They echo each other. Then you look at B and B, you'll hate the one, despise the other. Those echo each other. And then C and C, love the other, devoted to the one. So, and you can also see how that indented layout is similar to one half of that letter X, or the Greek chi. We, we tend, when we're reading something, we tend to emphasize like the first idea or the last idea. That's where we would put it for emphasis. But um, in a chiastic structure, the focus is drawn toward that middle idea. So in this verse from Matthew, love and devotion are what's at the center of what Jesus is talking about. So whatever we love and devote ourselves to will become our master. See how that device kind of points you to a meaning that's deeper than what you might have realized was there? So keeping that structure in mind, that chiastic structure, we're going to look at how John does that in his gospel. Because he does it in John chapter 18 and 19. And this particular representation of that chiastic structure um, is taken from a commentary by Lindsay S. Jodry, though many other commentaries do the same exact thing. She even borrowed it from a commentary she had used. So you'll notice that there is a back and forth from outside to inside, outside to inside. One scene takes place outside the praetorium, and the praetorium is just the residence of the Roman governor in Jerusalem. It's a place where the commander resides when he is in Jerusalem. So a scene takes place outside, and then a scene takes place inside, and it repeats. Pilate and Jesus are always the ones who are at the center of the acting. 
Um, Pilate is moving Jesus back and forth between these spaces, and the Jewish religious leaders, they stay outside the whole time. They stay outside because it is the day of preparation of the Passover, and they have already, they have already cleansed themselves. If they were to go inside, there's images of idols, and there's other implements that make that space in, unclean or impure. And so the priests can't go inside because if they were to go inside, they would have to purify themselves again, and they don't have time to do that because it's the day of preparation of the Passover. So in this structure, um, the A and A1 both happen outside, and it's where Jesus is sentenced to death, and, and the priests claim that they have no power. Now in B and B1, um, those echo each other, but I'm going to go, I'll go in and then out. So Pilate and Jesus discuss true kingship in B, and then in C, Pilate tries to release Jesus, but they demand release of Barabbas instead. And in D, Pilate has Jesus flogged, and the soldiers beat Jesus, and they mock him with this royal imagery. Then Pilate maintains that Jesus is innocent as we go outside again in C1, and he wants to release Jesus again, but he fears the accusation of the chief priests, because they'll say he claimed to be the Son of God. Then we go back inside where Pilate and Jesus discuss true power. We go back outside where against all of his desires, Pilate proves loyalty to Caesar and he hands Jesus over to death. So we'll keep looking back at this structure as we go through our passage today. But what I wanted to start with, with what's at the center of this chiastic structure. The first verses in our reading today, John 19, 1 through 3, this is what's at the center. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. This is where John is pointing us with that literary device. This is what John wants us to notice. The soldiers are mocking Jesus as their king. Hail, King of the Jews. They're crowning him with thorns and dressing him in a purple robe. And they're doing this not only to torture him, but they're doing it to humiliate him. It was common in Roman public executions to create a spectacle first, something for the people to see. Um, it would be a dramatic performance where the soldiers might make the accused person reenact some historic event or um, a defeated king or some other kind of humiliation that was known in their culture. The soldiers would make the person act this out. Um, it sounds crude, but the point is they wanted to alter the status of this person who had been claiming to have power. Now, if the condemned, Jesus in this case, if he were to rise up and attack, um, he's the one who's under arrest here. If he were to rise up and attack, it's the Roman soldiers who are going to be in the battle. It's the Roman soldiers who are going to die in a battle with him. So um, the soldiers present this public humiliation so that the person who's accused loses any power that they have over the crowd. As you see this person before him, they're humiliated, they're powerless. Now, even the crown of thorns that the soldiers would make, it supports this humiliation because the plant that we suspect they used and twisted into a crown of thorns, it had spikes that could reach up to 12 inches long. Um, not only does this cause immense pain, but it also could create a starburst crown effect that imitated the images of actual leaders on the coins at the time. So if the soldiers make Jesus appear in mockery as, their, as a king, they believe that he'll lose any power that he might have had to actually become king. 
So the soldiers mockingly crown Jesus, not realizing they're actually speaking the truth, and in doing so, they're condemning themselves as traitors. The soldiers are speaking a truth that they do not yet realize, and it even foreshadows that the Gentiles are going to come to call Jesus their king as well. Now in John's gospel, John has been presenting Jesus as king from the very first chapter. Jesus is the presence of God in the world. Jesus is the word made flesh. <clears throat> Jesus is king. So the soldiers are mocking Jesus as king, but this center passage, it points to the truth that John has been saying all along. It points to the truth of Jesus as king. So if we look back at this chiastic structure, the next section echoes a previous section in John 18. Pilate finds no harm in Jesus, no reason to punish him, and Pilate's ready to release Jesus and not charge him. But in both sections, the chief priests and the officials demand that Jesus be punished. So at the start of this section, Pilate brings Jesus out to show him to the Jewish leaders. Perhaps he's trying to show them exactly how powerless Jesus is, crowned as king at this point. He no longer appears as a threat who's going to incite any kind of revolution. Jesus has been beaten down and mocked. Perhaps Pilate is continuing the mockery of the soldiers and showing them a character of a king. But either way, take a look at how John's gospel records Pilate's words. In John 19.5, we read, When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. Now, Pilate may just be trying to point out Jesus' limits, naming him merely as a man, who is obviously susceptible to pain and to punishment. According to scholar N.T. Wright, there is a deep richness to this passage. In the culture at the time, Roman emperors would put statues of their likeness in all of the cities in their kingdom so that the people would know who the king is and see the image of their king on a daily basis. If we think back to Genesis 1, God in Genesis 1 puts his likeness into creation in human beings so that creation has an image of God, an image of who the king of all creation is. And John 1 sets Jesus up as this image of the word made flesh. God has put him in creation so that we will see who the king is. When Pilate says, here is the man, it reflects this, this act of putting God's image in creation at the very beginning and putting Jesus in creation right at this moment in time. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Right now, right here in front of them. And as Jesus goes to the cross... He fully reflects the image of a God who gives up God's own life for God's people. The Jewish leaders don't recognize this God before them, though. They want him crucified, but they're having trouble getting Pilate to agree to it. So Pilate tells them they should just crucify Jesus on their own. And he says he has no charge against Jesus. But when he says he has no charge, the religious leaders, just, they just increase the charge that they have against Jesus. So in verse 7, we hear their response. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. This is the ultimate charge that the religious leaders can bring against Jesus right now. He claims to be the Son of God. They don't see that he actually is. 
They don't see God in their midst, and they didn't see it, like when he healed the man born blind. They are pointing out to, G- to Pilate that Jesus has a religious dimension of power, and that adds another level of danger to, the, to who Jesus says that he is. So our text says that Pilate is even more afraid. And Pilate goes back inside to talk to Jesus. We see another layer of this chiastic structure echoing what had happened previously. In Pastor Stacy's passage last week, Pilate and Jesus talked about true kingship. And in the passage this week, Pilate and Jesus talk about true power. Pilate is frightened by the idea of Jesus having a divine nature. So he goes back and he asks Jesus again, where are you from? This is a central question of John's gospel. Where is Jesus from? It's said at different points that Jesus is from Galilee. Um, but people along the way have also recognized that Jesus is from God. Nicodemus and Nathaniel, the man born blind, and Peter and Martha, they've all declared in the Gospels that Jesus is from God. They've all recognized that. But when Pilate asks, where are you from, Jesus doesn't answer. He has already told Pilate in the passage last week. He's already told Pilate and invited Pilate into God's kingdom. And Pilate, here, he's trying to figure out the origin of Jesus' power. Pilate wants to know if Jesus' power is from somewhere that's going to be a threat to Pilate. Pilate wants to know if Jesus' power is going to be perceived as greater than Pilate's power. And Jesus' power, it is a threat to those in power. But none of those with earthly power truly understand the power that Jesus actually has. So Pilate pushes Jesus. He says, Pilate says, I have power over life and death. But Jesus points to the one from above who has the true power over life and death. In John 19, 11, we read, Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Jesus points to where he is from in this answer. The phrase from above, <clears throat> it can be found in other stories. <laughs> Excuse me. Other stories in John's gospel. That phrase from above, we hear it in other stories. And it gives Jesus' origin, which John, again, has been saying since the beginning of his gospel. Jesus has been accused of calling himself the Son of God, and he's telling Pilate that his power comes from above. But it's up to Pilate to connect Jesus' source of power to God. I was thinking, as we read our Bible passage this morning, there are a lot of power plays going on, aren't there? And I started to think about, when was a time when I experienced a power play in my life? When have I had someone call out their authority over me in a way that left me feeling silenced. And really, I admit, it has not happened all that often. Um, I remember being at a breakfast for pastors one time where um, my friends had invited me along to the conference they were going to, and they fully supported me as a pastor and women in ministry, but they didn't realize that the conference didn't. So they signed me up for the pastor's breakfast, not knowing that this whole conference just affirms men in ministry. So when I walked into this room of all-male pastors for the pastor's breakfast, I felt the power difference. I had a seat at the table for breakfast, but I did not have a voice. I had no power in that room at all, 
but did I realize that ultimately the men in the room were not the ones who determine who has power? I'm not sure that I did. And in today's reading, the Jewish leaders are pretty confident in their power. They want Jesus crucified, and they're going to say whatever they need to say to make sure that gets done. Pilate is fairly confident in his power. After all, he's a Roman ruler. He knows that he has more power and authority than any of these people who have showed up at his praetorium today. But he does fear a higher power in Caesar. So in this passage, and in, in all the passages, right, Jesus is the one with the highest power. He knows that. He knows that he has the all-surpassing power of the God of the universe. But Jesus doesn't pull that out over all the others and their supposed power. He knows that um, instead he needs to submit to the plans of the God of the universe. He knows the immediate is going to be painful, but trusting that what is to come is going to be far greater. And I've experienced moments like the one at the breakfast where my voice may be temporarily silenced, but I haven't experienced this for long stretches of time. Stretches of time that would force me to focus on the larger picture and the plan of the God who holds all the power of the universe in his hand. I came across some song lyrics this week, though, that I suggest others have had to have that long view, have experienced um, something that I have not experienced. I think that when we look at Christ in this passage, who's able to hold it all together in the midst of this power play that's ultimately going to take his life, I think when we see that, we get a little glimpse into the stories of our brothers and sisters who have experienced true oppression in all its ugly shapes and forms. They sing of God's ultimate authority in a way that I don't know as deeply because they've had to wrestle with an unfair and unjust imbalance of power in the here and now. And one song that I found this week that points to that reality is by an artist called Urban Doxology. <clears throat> According to their website, Urban Doxology is a ministry that writes the soundtrack of reconciliation in the racially diverse neighborhood of Church Hill, Richmond, Virginia. They bring musicians in through a summer internship program. And then these musicians write songs and rehearse music and plan for worship in a congregation in the urban context. They share this music in their church, and they also release albums online that we can access. Um, they define urban doxology as any liturgy, preaching, or music and arts that crosses boundaries in ethnicity, race, and class, and prepares God's people for the city of God. So take a look at the lyrics from Purge Me by Urban Doxology. Lord, I want you, and Lord, I need you. I come as nothing with everything to lose. So come and make me new. I'm crying out. I'm desperate for you. And I'm not afraid to open my heart and give you all. We'll declare your name. Jehovah reigns despite our problems. And through the pain, we'll learn to trust in you. I can't say for certain, but it seems to me that this song is written and sung by a group of people who have been emptied of their power. By others in ways that I haven't experienced. And in the midst of that, these are a people who recognize that in this kingdom of God, God is the only one who holds the true power. Jehovah reigns despite our problems, and through the pain, we'll learn to trust in you. So if you want to hear that song, I linked it in the Bible app for you this week. I'd encourage you, listen to it today. 
So the final layer of this chiasm connects the beginning of the passage to the end. At both the beginning and the end of the story, Jesus is outside before the Jewish leaders, and the Jewish leaders are asking for Jesus to be executed. The religious leaders have claimed they have no power, but now they essentially manipulate Pilate to get him to do exactly what they want. In John 19, 12, we read, From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Pilate has already said he doesn't see any basis for a charge against Jesus. The religious leaders have turned the question back to Pilate. Is he a friend of Caesar, or is he a friend of this powerless prisoner, Jesus? The religious leaders have caught Pilate in a question that he can't avoid. They point out that if Jesus claims to be king, then Jesus is undermining the emperor, Caesar. And Pilate should do anything and everything in his power to get rid of those who seek to undermine Caesar. If he doesn't, then Pilate isn't a true servant of Caesar. So to maintain his power, Pilate needs to side with Caesar and execute anyone who opposes Caesar. So John 19, 13 and 14. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. Here is where Pilate shows the people their king, as earlier he had shown them the man. It's likely that this is another mocking gesture. Pilate seats Jesus, powerless, wearing a crown of thorns, robed in purple, on the judgment seat. Pilate is mocking both the Jewish leaders, this beat down and broken man is your king. But he's also mocking Jesus. Pilate's actions are an attempt to show Jesus as a powerless king. But as we look at Jesus, God made flesh, heading to the cross for each and every one of us, we see Jesus as the king he truly is. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He sits in the midst of a dark and broken world with leaders of his own religion and his own culture shouting to crucify him. And yet we see an embodiment of God's love that is so great, Jesus is willing to die for all of us who turn against him. The Jewish leaders reject this king. Not only do they reject Jesus as king, but Pilate pushes them to a place where they reject God as their king. In John 19, 15, we read, But they shouted, Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him! Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. One commentator suggests that the response of the Jewish leader should have been, We have no king but God. This isn't what they say, though. They've forced Pilate to a place where Pilate has to claim loyalty to Caesar by killing Jesus. So Pilate forces them to a place where they have to claim loyalty to Caesar as well to prove that what they're really fighting for is loyalty to this empire. Throughout John's gospel, John has been leading us to this place where we will recognize Jesus and claim him as the king and the son of God. 
So these words that come from the chief priests are the complete opposite of John's declaration. They're the complete opposite of claiming Jesus, the embodiment of God, as king. We have no king but Caesar, they say. When we look at Jesus and we hear the words, here is your king, how do we respond to God? Are we a people who claim we have no king but God? We have no king but Jesus? Or do we claim other things and other powers in our lives as more important than God? Pilate was given the choice of calling Caesar his king or calling Jesus his king. The religious leaders were given the choice of calling Caesar their king, calling God their king, or calling Jesus, God made flesh, their king. What about us? Do we call a political leader our king? Do we call an athlete or a celebrity our king? Do we call something we possess our king? Do we call technology our king? Do we call our family members our king? Do we hold Jesus as a king in our lives? Or do we put something or someone else in place of this king? And what do your words and your actions say to others about who you claim as king in your life? If you were to ask a few of the people who are the closest to you, what seems like the most important thing in my life? If you were to ask them that, would they recognize Jesus as your king? At the center of our passage, at the center of this chiasm, Jesus is crowned as king. It's a painful crowning where those doing it don't recognize that they're mockingly crowning the one and only king of the universe. And in the midst of the suffering, Jesus is still king. And the good news for each and every one of us, no matter who or what we place as king, the king of the universe went to the cross and died for us so that we could be forgiven of all the other things and all the other people that we falsely crown as king. If you have never committed to following Jesus as this king and this God, I would love to talk with you and pray with you after the service today. Or take the opportunity to talk and pray with someone in your family or with one of your friends who also follows Jesus. Here is your king, Jesus. May we all have eyes and hearts to recognize him. Will you pray with me this morning? Gracious God, we come before you and we proclaim that you are indeed king. You are the word made flesh. You are the God who came to dwell among us, who gave your life for us, who went to the cross to forgive us despite all the other things that we may have placed ahead of you in our lives. God, we ask for your forgiveness and other things in our lives as king. Lord, we pray you would open our eyes to the ways that we let those things get ahead of you. And Lord, we pray that as um, we are drawn in a closer relationship to you and as we learn more and more what it means to follow you as our king, we pray that others will come alongside us, that others will see your power, and that they also will know your name and will proclaim you as king. We thank you for all the ways you are here with us, and we ask that you would continue to be in our praises this morning. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.